0: Log Talk Radio. go back in time. The season's passed. When 25 then grace the rigor fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight we'll explore the world of gridiron grace. Welcome to gridiron grace football history of memorabilia on the gridiron grace publisher and broadcasting network in conjunction with slick enterprises, and we're live. From the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine, I'm Bob Spook, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We'll cover 150 plus years of football history and memorabilia. Find us on the web at com. It is at this time. I'd like to introduce my co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Great Iron Greats Magazine. A football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawk items, in particular Steve Larson. <laughs> he held Portland, Oregon. Mr. Joe Squires. Joe, welcome to the show this week.
1: Bob, great to be back. Good to hear you. Happy, happy uh, Super Bowl week, as I call it, man's holiday, Super Bowl
0: Sunday. It was a very interesting Super Bowl with some minor controversy at the end. However, the game was won after 60 yep. minutes of battle. And um, as I said to several people who were Eagle fans here locally, Philadelphia has more than ample opportunities to win the game throughout the entire game. And I think it was just a question that we saw Philadelphia basically implode on the second half of the game and uh, they they pretty much rolled up and died. The defense, I don't know what happened to them. I really don't. I mean, it was uh, an amazing way for the game to end. I also make Mm -hmm. make the comment that uh, if Kansas City had made that field goal beforehand, it would have been a moot point at the end of the game uh, with that holding penalty, and uh, that's it. So it's interesting. Very interesting. One comment i got to make, though, yeah, because a couple people asked me about it. They, they said, what did, what did I think of Philadelphia going on fourth down for first down so many times that it did? And I said, I made two comments with regards to it. I said, yeah, it's a gutsy move, and, you know, I know you're playing to win, so on and so forth. The one thing that really kind of concerned me about watching the Eagles play, it seemed the bulk of their offense is on Hurts uh, himself running with the ball. And at some point, you really hope that guy is not going to be tackled the wrong way or hit the wrong way, and it puts him out of commission. You know what I mean? I mean, he had yeah. three rushing touchdowns, the two point conversion, and I'm saying to myself, okay, is this is this the offense of the Philadelphia Eagles? You know, directly around him. You know, we're we're looking at a 1930s 40s uh, offense here, with the quarterback in a in a formation just running every every play. It's amazing really amazing didn't make a lot yeah, of sense no, I,
1: it, it, any any uh, offense that relies on the legs of its quarterback is rolling the dice every time that quarterback you know rounds the tackles it's it's a matter of time before somebody catches up with them somebody catches them from behind somebody catches them from the side and uh and if, and if that's the entire if the entire weight of the team is being put on those shoulders then you know without that then you're you're in trouble I mean, right. Yeah. Look at the Forty ers
0: And I, I was really, really surprised for a Super Bowl just to see that was the that was basically the Eagles' offense. And if that's the case, um, you know, I think I think they kind of should reexamine it a little next season. So again, like you say and I say, the quarterback doesn't get seriously injured and he's gone and that's it. that's done. You know. So, uh, but anyways. Congratulations to the Chiefs again, second Super Bowl. And uh, I gotta, I gotta shout out uh, to the uh, Nick Aglaretti family. Congratulations on a the birth of twins, which I guess happened the day after the Super Bowl. So it was a pretty proud pop out there. Uh, knowing his <laughs> wife was uh, getting, ready, getting ready to deliver. Congratulations to the Aglaretti family, the longtime. supporters of the magazine and uh, I think I'm glad to see everything went well with uh, uh, mom and the babies so congratulations again another point another point tonight Uh, Hall of Fame class of 23 what do you think
1: oh somebody I guess on a couple weeks ago talking about the uh, Hall of you know the Hall of average the Hall of below average um, and I think with every Hall of Fame uh, year that rolls around, there's mixed bags. I mean, everybody has their advocate. You know, we saw most of these people play. Uh, but let me let me run down the list with uh, Ron uh, you. Rondé know, Barber, obviously we got to see him play. A lockdown kind of, you know, quarterback, 47 interceptions, three-time All-Pro, five-time Pro Bowl, all-decade team of 2,000. That, that's quite a resume. Uh, three-time All-Pro. Uh, is up there that's the best in the NFL for 3 of his playing years and to be all decade for 2000 is is quite a notch on the on the resume as well uh i i think that's that that's a yes uh an, an easy yes don coriel i grew up watching eric coriel i was a Seahawks fan growing up but i was also a Chargers fan because i love mm-hmm. Dan Faust's back, straight back. I always wondered how he didn't trip on his own feet. Kellen Winslow, John Jefferson, Joyner, Chuck Muncie. I mean, uh, you know, think about that. I mean, uh, just Eric Coryell. I still get goosebumps thinking about, you know, 400-yard days were an average day at the office for, you know, for that offense back then in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, John Jefferson. Yeah, just... Obviously, yes. Revolutionized that West Coast offense in the passing game. Chuck Howley finally in yep. um, th- this one was amazing. It-, it stunned me that he had to wait this long. Five-time All-Pro, six-time Pro Bowl, uh, Super Bowl five MVP. Uh, the o- still the only player on the losing team of the Super Bowl to be named the MVP. Imagine that. Right. Imagine what that takes. Uh, Chuck Howley, right. right. long time overdue. Five All Pros, even back then, is huge. That, that the oversight for Chuck Halley not to make it. Darrell right. Rivas, right. four-time All Pro, seven-time Pro Bowl, All Decade of 2010. Darrell Rivas uh, introduced the term "lockdown corner." I mean, he was that island. Uh, I just I'll never forget him. It's just that you you didn't go after him. You. You know, you you, you didn't you didn't throw to an entire side of the field because he was over there. Uh, you know, Ed Reed, Darrell Revis. Uh, I mean, these guys. Uh, you know, Troy Palomalu, These 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 were the guys that revolutionized the defensive game. Four All Pros, seven Pro Bowls during the time he played, and he named All Decade twenty ten during that entire season. Era, that that entire era. Pretty amazing. Right. Uh, Demarcus Ware. Right. Obviously, not even a not even a second out, One hundred and thirty eight. .5 sacks in his career, four-time All-Pro, uh, three-time second-team All-Pro, nine Pro Bowls, All-Decade 2000s. These are, that is the Hall of Fame. And uh, so I, I ran down the people that were the obvious, like, yes, they exemplify the Hall of Fame. That's why we have it. And then you kind of get into the – the, these are the above average, Joe Klecko, Ken Riley and Zach Thomas. I remember watching Zach Thomas play. Maybe I'm a West Coast bias. Zach Thomas was amazing. Above average. Above average. And maybe he's that bubble. I'm sure I'm going to get you know some flack here for saying he's on the bubble. but uh, you mm-hmm. know, amazing. Ken Riley, 65 interception is in his career. One time all pro. Uh, when I was collecting Hall of Fame rookie cards, he was on my sheet. I needed his card. But he was always one of those players where he was just way down the list. One All-Pro in your playing time doesn't sure. quite make the Hall of Fame. Uh, and then well, obviously Joe Klecko.
0: I, I think in, in Riley's sorry. defense, in Riley's defense, he didn't he didn't play for a lot of great teams. But obviously, yeah. you know, he he did show something on the field. Klecko, I watched because of New York. You know, I watched a lot of Jets games yeah. over the years. Klecko was was. You know, he was one. Of, he was a New Yorker. I mean, he was a New York type guy who went out. You know, he reminded you of a guy with a lunchbox, that he would put his lunchbox on the um, on the uh, bench and go out and play, and then you know, eat his lunch in between plays, type of thing. You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah I do agree with you. It, it, there, you know, there is a bubble there with those three guys, uh, one way or the other. And again, you know, like we talk about, we talked about before, it's always a stretch. You know, for whatever reason, they're pushing guys. You know, who? Yeah, maybe they should be there, and maybe they should not be there. Type of thing. Yeah. And by your, you know, your analysis of what you know, of the of their backgrounds, their careers, you know, it yeah. says something there. You know what I mean? So yep. uh is like good. Uh, two All Pros, four Pro Bowls.
1: Uh, you know, at his, his, his jersey retired in New York. In New York. I mean, two All-Pros is there. That's pretty good. I've always considered three kind of to be the minimum. I don't know. Uh, that's just purely from a data point of view. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, welcome, you move down to, to Zach Thomas that's is nice another move. one. I mean, solid Hall of Famer, All-Team or all pro five times, second team twice, seven Pro Bowls. Uh, I mean, good, just solid. I remember watching Zach Thomas, like I said, and he's he was good. But there's this West Coastness to it, where it's like you, you remember how good he was, and
0: then and then we switched
1: from Miami over to New England chasing that ring. Uh,
0: yep, yep. And then, and the know. same thing with Klecko. Cleco always had the New York City. Uh, media bias media influence and like I said he was a working man player so that's why everybody loved him type of thing so yeah. obviously that helped them help them get into the get into the hall um, shifting gears real quick you had mentioned uh, prior uh there's some interesting hall of fame rings for uh in auction i believe at heritage what'd you would you pick up on that
1: yeah totally i was asking before the show it some of, the, some of the best, you know, hobby talk that we have is uh, the minutes before the show when we catch up. There is a, uh, this really got my eye, 1968. Uh, this is in Heritage coming up. It ends in, I think, nine days. Uh, 1968, Bart Starr, Super Bowl two Green Bay Packer, uh, uh, Super Bowl ring. And then it says, Salesman Sample Ring. And this has Bart Starr's mm-hmm. name on it. Got the three diamonds. It's uh, got the score. It's got everything. And I was asking you what a salesman sample was because I didn't quite understand the terminology.
0: The salesman sample, basically the the ring company would make actual samples of different uh, models of the ring that the team could model it on. And uh, they would go around and show, in this case with the Packers, they would always show Lombardi because Lombardi had pretty much the final say on all the rings. And they probably would give them, if memory serves me correctly, two to four different designs. He had his own idea of what he wanted, so he would kind of give them feedback before they would uh, design the ring, and the samples were created. How many samples were created? Seems to me the Packers had a ton of uh, sales oh, yeah. and sample rings uh, for whatever reason, and they uh, they made it back to the market into the market lately. And um, I, I do see him, uh, but you know, to me, the to have a star or anything. Uh, as far as the Super Bowl is concerned, related to the Super Bowl is to me very valuable Hold and on. very, uh, very rare. Also at the same time, I, I would, cool. I would not, I would not say in any way, shape, or form. I can't see any of Bart Starr's uh, real personal memorability going to the market anytime soon, even with with gotcha. his past. I I, I, I really believe that that's my opinion. With you know, I don't collect.
1: I wasn't familiar with the phrase. I, I mean, I've heard, I've seen the sales and sample before. I just never knew what it was. Uh, there's a 1970 yeah. Baltimore Colts Johnny Unitas Super Bowl V sample ring, the Bart Starr 1968 Super Bowl II one I mentioned. Uh, there's an actual Super Bowl uh, 26 championship ring presented to wide receiver Troy Brown from 2001 to yeah. the Patriots, their first Super Bowl. Oh, what a Super Bowl ring. I mean, the, the, the culmination of your, you know, of, your, of your career. Troy Brown is a good wide receiver, too. Uh, it's at $10,000 yep, $10, yep. plus, plus the VIG. There's a ref, William the Refrigerator Perry. And, and they say huge Super Bowl ring, uh, Super Bowl twenty sample ring again. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's one other one, a 1965 Green Bay Packer NFL Championship ring. This is the actual one. 1965 Green Bay mm-hmm. Packer NFL championship ring pre-Super Bowl presented to Hall of Fame halfback Paul Horning. This is Paul Horning's actual ring, and it's got his name on the side, his number, uh, character, and dedication laid on it, Green Bay 23, Cleveland 12. Uh,
0: wow. Pretty pretty cool. Great stuff. Mm. Great stuff. We'll, we'll see what happens. One of our next shows, we'll be talking about where those prices ended up on that. But yeah. now our special, special guest is here, and I'd like to welcome him to the show. Our special guest tonight, the great-grandson of the 1906 professional football world champion, Massillian Tigers captain, Bob Shearing, who is regarded by many as the greatest center of the pre-NFL professional era. He's a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and lives in the Water Sound, Florida. He's also a graduate of Georgetown University. And the founder and president of Integra Valuation and Advisory Services. Due to his love for family, sports, in his hometown, he spent 15 years developing his new book, nice. Iron Legacy. He is also the executive producer of a related television miniseries in development, and I'd like to welcome to the show this evening, Mr. Greg Tricery. Greg, thanks for coming on. Hey, Bob, how are you? You hearing me okay? Yep. Coming in loud and clear. All thanks right. for being on. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and, and, and uh, spending some time with us and your new book. And I want to lead off uh, by asking you if you could tell our listeners about your great-grandfather, the very, very uh, famous... Well,
2: thanks for having me, Bob. It's a pleasure. Um, so, Bob Sharing was, as you said, he was the, the captain of the... 1906 world champion Maslin Tigers Uh, and from 1903 to 06 Maslin uh, won every state slash world championship of professional football and those are the years that he played for them Um, he was imported by them as one of the first four ringers uh, professional players to come to play in Ohio from the Pittsburgh era after 10 years of um, the first 10 years of professional football as it turned out from Pudge Heffelfinger being the first paid pro player in 1892 for the Allegheny Athletic Association um, and until 1902 when the Pittsburgh Stars slash Pros um, were the last pro team in Pittsburgh of that, in that era. And my great-grandfather also played for the 1901 Homestead Library and Athletic Club World Championship team in Pittsburgh, and for that 1902 Pittsburgh Stars team, which included Christy Mathewson, one of the greatest baseball players of all time. So basically, uh, I I grew up knowing just little bits and pieces from my grandmother uh, and and, uh, about his professional career, and, and, and that was... Sort of animated by a a few pictures that she had of his teams, the homestead one of the homestead teams from 1901 and the 1905 and 06, Massillon Tigers team pictures on her basement wall. So they were very sort of haunting. That the the uh, the the looks on their faces, these big strong tough men that looked pretty brutal, and that just inspired a lot of questions, just wondering what it was all about. And so that was in the back of my mind you know for for my whole life until the opportunity came to really research and develop the whole story initially just for my family as sort of a genealogy project about um you know fifteen years ago and into what turned into this sort of national scope project and sort of changing the narrative of of, of the pre n f l era um, um according to the hall of fame and and several other people who have reviewed it. So it's been a wonderful journey, long journey, challenging, very, very rewarding.
0: Wow. Mm. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. The, the, interesting, cool. Part cool. To me, the in- interesting part to me, though, when um, we got your name from John Wilkie, who's a mutual friend of ours, And he he was talking to me about it. And I said, wow, yeah, I'd love to, you know, doing a little research on this, you know, reading your website and a few other places. Uh, I was just shocked. And, again, here's a classic example of an unknown part of early professional football history actually gets researched and actually gets uh, documented and we can learn from it. And that's, to me, just the amazing part of something over 100 and how many years ago can actually be developed and actually be um, the story be retold and preserved for history. Great, great information.
2: Yeah. It became pretty clear to me you know, pretty quickly that this was, you know, a huge opportunity. Um, and I didn't look at it you know, like a business opportunity, but just a, a as an inspirational project to, to, and to, to share with the world, something that's <clears throat> uh, so little known as the origin story of, of, of of our most popular sport. So Mm the name of the book is gridiron legacy, um, pro football's missing origin story. So, um, you know, I did what research I could to see what was out there. and, 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 you know, Joe Horrigan from the pro football hall of fame and Bob Carroll, before he passed away from the PFRA, um, they quickly validated that what I discovered, um, Initially, in 2007, which was sort of the launching point for the project, when my grandmother died and we cleaned out her house, and I found a whole box full of of more uh, very special photos from my great-grandfather's playing career. Uh, Team photos, individual photos, small group photos. Um, Some had names on the back, some didn't. I needed some help identifying them, and Bob Carroll was super helpful with that. And, and he told me I had to get out to see Joe at the Hall of Fame and share all this with him. And and they were just slack-jawed. They're like, who are you? And, you know, <laughs> we don't have anything from the pre-NFL era, Harley. This is really special. And, you know, if you can combine that, uh, these photos with and, and complete the narrative that's really missing also about the pre-NFL era and this uh, sort of cold case of this alleged gambling scandal in 1906 between the Canton Bulldogs and the Massillon Tigers that really ended pro football for about 10 years, uh, you'd have a really special book. And then on top of that, everything that I d- discovered along the way, just just even added uh, more interest and intrigue to the story. So what lots of um, discoveries that changed um, some historical beliefs and facts along
1: the way. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, Greg, this is uh, Joe, I'm the co-host here. Thank you for coming on the show and discussing your book, by the way. Uh, your, your landing page for your book, Gridiron Legacy, is awesome. Uh, the, the video you have there uh, that's embedded in the website, uh, first of all, handsome man, and I love that background you have there with three killer, uh, just historical photos in the back. Um it, I mean, you, you mentioned the project, I mean, and on your landing page there, it's a project inspired by long forgotten photos found in the, your grandmother's basement in Pittsburgh after she passed away. I mean, that's obviously how you decided to write it. Were, were you a football fan prior? What was what was it like opening this box and seeing your great-grandfather and, and just uncovering all this history? It's hard to describe the thrill of that. I mean –
2: uh, I, I love sports, you know, first of all, and I love playing pretty much every sport. Uh, at an organized level, I probably tried every sport but football because I was a, a, a twig as a high school kid. I probably weighed about 135 <laughs> to 150 pounds in high school. So I became a college tennis player, you know, when tennis was big in the 70s and 80s. Um, but um, but I love you know, Pirates, Penguins, Steelers, and yeah. – um, some connection uh, in the family to the roots of of football. Um, It's just super intriguing. Um, And and before the internet, you felt like I'd probably never be able to really learn much about this whole story, but there were a few books done back in the seventies, coffee table type books, all black and white pictures. And, And my grandmother showed me one, uh, that was written by Robert Lecky. I can't remember the name. Maybe the uh, Illustrator's History of Pro Football, something like that. And and it had his team pictures, a couple of them, in the book. So I knew this was real. She wasn't just you know making exaggerating something that it was significant, but um, just not a lot there. So you know maybe a couple pages at the beginning of a you know, longer Pro Football History book with the early Super Bowl era and so on. Um, so there was a lot clearly a lot more to be developed. There was never – had never really been a a big, full narrative on the pre-NFL era, at least, uh, especially with any, you know, color to it because, um, as I said, everything mostly black and white. But uh, as I was able to add a lot of collectibles and memorabilia, you know, visually to the story of of the pictures of the players – I was very intentional in trying to create something unique and special and colorful, more colorful than has ever been done before. And I got some nice feedback lately from somebody just through Facebook that said that they're so pleased with the quality of the book when they received it, that it was like uh, a museum, you know, like um, walking through a museum from cover to cover. So um, I think it's pretty special.
1: By the way, Greg, that title, pro football's missing origin story that that absolutely grabbed me when I first read it how did you come up with that right
2: uh it was really hard coming up with the the right title for the book um yeah uh, over time uh I I can't remember different people had inputs originally I was going to call the book the hero's journey but that really didn't connect Mm. to football and um but there's if you're familiar with the concept of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey in mythology, there's sort of the journey of, it's almost like the field of dreams of football and really the parallels are magical to me that if I were Kevin Costner, I sort of followed this calling to discover all of these things and, and reveal the story of these football players sort of coming through the cornfields in Canton, Ohio, wanting to be, you know, their story to be told and, and to be forgiven for uh, being accused of, of of fixing the championship games like the Black Sox did in in baseball. And, you know, maybe something that they didn't do, but because the story had never been told. And so the the biggest discovery in terms of fact and narrative in the story, and I don't want to give, you know, spoil the whole thing, but I I discovered a court file in in, um, Stark County in, in Ohio that had the, depositions from people involved in, in this case in which Canton's captain uh-huh. blondie blondie wallace uh sued the Maslin team and newspaper and owners for libel for accusing him of polluting in this scandal and it re- ruined his life and um and it, it never got to court officially because he like the official story was he ran out of money and couldn't pay his legal fees but, but people still assumed he was guilty and and, and uh, he he went down in history as a bad guy and became a bootlegger, which added to his criminal <laughs> le- reputation, and um, went to jail and, and, and so on. But um, and died, a, you know, of liver disease at a very young age, tragically. But the, the deposition reveals the facts behind the case that that are very different than what was told in, in the newspapers. No surprise, and um, and it, it, it's a really fascinating um, sort of. Uh, revelation uh, of this cold case and that, that adds to the uniqueness of the book along with the photos and uh, some other things I discovered that I think we'll get
0: into in a minute. I, I just pulled out of my uh, bookcase here, that book you were talking about uh, the uh, illustrated story of professional of uh, football. And my copy is a first edition from 1969. I had this when I was a kid. The Story of Football, I'm sorry, by Robert Right. And uh, I I read that book, I don't know how many hundreds of times. I just went through the front part of it again, and I can see how some of the photos uh, will parallel what you were uh, being shown at the time uh, by your family there. And it's it's just amazing. I can only imagine finding photos like that and uh, out of you know, out of a family heirloom, and it's just just amazing to me, amazing. So uh, along those lines, do you have any interesting stories uh, about when you were writing this book that you could uh, share with us uh, in in relationship to the development of the book? Yeah, so
2: many. We don't have enough time, but I'll try to pick the best ones. Um... From a personal standpoint, I mean, developing a relationship with Franco Harris, yeah, who wrote the foreword wow. of the book, was, was so special. Um, he, he was so good to me and and kind and genuinely interested in the story and helping however he could, which is just you feel like I'm, but he did that for so many people. But you know, the time that I got to spend with him and in, in iterating on on his writing of the forward and some ideas and and um, it was really special. And he, it was a really um heartfelt you know p- couple pages that he wrote and ha- how he connected with the story and and really was such a passionate football historian um so we had lots of great uh conversations a- about what he liked about um my writing and the stories that I told um, um, and and how it related to how much he loved football so I I guess in, in summary uh, so that was special. Um, in terms of the memorabilia and things that, you know, discoveries that, that you uh, like to talk about on your show, um, the Hall of Fame uh, now has in its uh, displays two trophies that, that I found that it calls the first two known pro football championship trophies. And uh, Mm -hmm. these were from the Homestead teams from 1900 and 1901 that I discovered in their storage closet in this what's now called the Carnegie Library of Homestead that I didn't piece together until somebody tipped me off that it was the same facility that used to be called the Homestead Library and Athletic Club. And and when I got there in 2012 and, and toured it with somebody that used to work there Uh, eventually after sort of being disappointed that they didn't know anything or have anything about these teams that they sponsored that were the world champions for two years, we got into their storage closet and there they were on a, on a shelf gathering dust. You know, they had no idea what they represented, but i had seen a picture of of one of them in, in a, in an old Pittsburgh newspaper from 1901. And so I recognized what was sitting right in front of me and, and then a couple wow. of old trophies down from it was one that looked like a football shaped like a football with two handles on the side and a lid on the top. And it was the one from 1900. So oh my talk God. about, you know, the excitement of <laughs> a discovery. I mean, we, I called the hall of fame from the, on the spot and, and they said, send them out. You know, they, they knew exactly, they knew everything about the Homestead teams and they, they call them the Holy Grail of, of pro football. It's, it's the, the chalice, you know, the chalices of, um, of the game. So uh, that that was you know, from a, I don't want to say collecting standpoint, from but from a discovery of a historical artifact that's so meaningful to the game. I mean, uh, the 1901 trophy still sits in the rotunda in the first exhibit in Canton, along with the birth certificate of pro football, the Heffelfinger accounting ledger from the Allegheny Athletic oh. Association in 1892. And, and the other one from 1900. I understand. That I haven't been there yet, but there's a a uh, branch sort of a, of the Hall of Fame in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina now, and and um, that there's a sort of a mini Hall of Fame there. And and the other one is there. So looking forward to getting there.
0: That's really cool. Wow. Jeez. I gotta check that. I gotta check that out. I'm about like an hour and a half from Myrtle Beach here, and um, I gotta see that. That's amazing. I've got to research them.
1: Uh, hey, uh, Greg, again, you're, you're, some of the pictures you have on, again, your website. I mean, I, I'm a big Jim Thorpe collector, and I've got a couple of photos and, you know, cards from him in 1907. Uh, and it, it's kind of interesting because one of the photos you have on your landing page is the Canton Bulldogs from 1906, Canton, Ohio. And then there's a Thorpe, I mean, uh, in the top row, which is always, you know, you know, throws people off, but he it does. Throw so that. Tom Thorpe, to not Jim Thorpe, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've bumped into that a few times as a Thorpe collector. We're like, oh my gosh, nineteen oh six Thorpe, and you click on it, you're like, oh, damn it, you know, come on, guys, no. throw a first name. And no, you know. but
2: there's, there's no E on the end of Tom Thorpe's last name, and he played at Columbia,
1: I think, in, in college. Yeah. Um, the uh, uh, pre, you know, nineteen you know, 15, whatever you want to call it, 1920 pre-NFL stuff is so hard to find. And you've just got photos of the, the Tigers of the Bulls. I mean, it's just, it's incredible what you have. I mean, to say your, you know, your great-grandfather played a historical part of football history, I mean, is an understatement. I mean, as you're digging in and researching for this book, what part of his career stood out to you and your family that that just stunned you? I think the big, the, the the most
2: amazing and sort of impressive fact to me is that um, growing up in Pittsburgh, you know, he he only finished the eighth grade. And and like many young people did then and just had to go to work to support the family and that he found his way into amateur football and up into professional football, um, first with some of the top amateur teams in Pennsylvania, the one called the James F. Lallis Athletic Club. They became known as the East End Athletic Club, and they played Homestead in 1900. And because there weren't enough pro teams for the, you know, all the pro teams to play a full pro schedule, they played college as an amateur teams also. And um, they invited him because of his excellent play in, in the, their 1900 game to join them in 1901 to, to go straight to the best team in the country. And that from there that he continued eventually started for them in uh, late in the year. And then in the 1902 Pittsburgh stars team was, you know, one of their, their center. Also he played the center position. Um, And then to be one of the first four to be recruited with three of his teammates from that um, um, team to go to Ohio with the Madison Tigers Eventually, in staying with them through 1906, the only one to play with them all four years, being named the captain in, in 1906 of, of the world championship team, again, with only a grade school education amongst the, the best all-American Ivy League educated players in the country, said so much about his character. Um, and I think it, that's the most valuable legacy that he left as the patriarch of our family, you know, was his character. And, and honesty in in, the, in this, um, what was known about the, the gambling scandal of 06 was that he was the first player that the gamblers uh-huh. approached to try to get his team to fix the games with Canton. And that he, my grandmother even knew that bit that, that he refused the bribes and reported it to his coach and who reported it to the management. And it's still, kind of all blew up on them as they tried to figure out how to navigate the situation without letting the, the fans know what was going on and it all kind of got out anyway. But, um, uh, I, I think that that's the, the most like satisfying, uh, thing you know, that, that I've learned about, um, and I appreciate about him.
1: That's really cool. We We, we have another friend of the, friend of the show uh michael moran Matt moran and his dad half moran played you know football for the giants and it's just it's always fun to say he you know you know his family is you know kind of nfl history and you know it's kind of the same thing here just to recognize just how how part of nfl history pre-nfl history for that matter i mean this is way before nfl history so uh, that that's just really cool thank, thank you, you.
0: Yeah, that 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 is a good point, Joe. Because again, we're looking at we're hearing pre-NFL history here, and I don't think a lot of people are aware, except you know, longtime collectors, historians of the game, realize the implications of that betting scandal at that time, and what it actually mm. you know what what it actually did to the game at the time, and. You know, it's been argued over the years that that really stopped professional football from being formed because it was, you know, it, people thought it was a, you know, a crooked game type of thing. And uh, you know, fast forward to 1919, the Black Sox scandal and yeah. the problems of baseball had. It's 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 just kind of amazing to me to you know hear the actual story of what happened and uh, you know what players. You know, did about it at that time too, because again, you know, they 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 weren't making a heck of a lot of money, and uh, you know, yeah. you got an opportunity to make a few more bucks. You know, this is what you're going to do, and that's it. So uh, that that right. to me is a, is a very very amazing part of this entire story. And um, again, I I don't think enough people, except people like us and, and you know PFRA people really know anything about it at that time so um it's it's pretty interesting to to uh, hear uh from a family member of, of what he actually did during the, that crisis at that time that's that's amazing truly really amazing yeah i think if you had
2: to pick a guy you know whose perspective you wanted to to you know view the whole story from it would be bob sharing because he of his progression from you know from Pittsburgh through the Ohio, he, he was on like every major team from you know basically 1901 to, to 1906. I mean, they won the, every World sure. Championship, but um, and being the captain and the focal point, you know, the initial touch point in that scandal. But I, I really tried to touch in the on in the book how prevalent gambling was all around. You know, that time uh, f- <laughs> from those early years in the nineteen hundreds, even through the Black Sox and I'm sure, you know, it's never stopped really until today, but through Prohibition and everything else. It was kind of a sort of a lawless time in a way. It was the Wild West in pro football. There especially there were not many rules and and, and structure to a league or anything. players jumped from team to team, week to week a lot. But there's even a picture in the book that was one of my favorites of Christy Matthewson playing baseball where he was warming up uh, before a game and throwing in front of a big sign on the, on the side of the field that said <laughs> no gambling allowed. So, you know, they had to keep yeah. gamblers out of the baseball parks and, and there's, there's even a story about the 1903, the first world series between the pirates and the Red Sox gamblers tried to bribe Cy Young, I, I think it was to, to fix uh, those games. And he laughed at, you know, he laughed about, t- told a story about how he told them to get lost um so but but, there are a lot of other stories that I've told from the newspapers about how the players you know there's still a lot of gambling amongst the communities you know between Canton and Maslin uh residents and and amongst the Pittsburgh communities on their home county. It was just normal and um and the players <laughs> even the ones that had the best reputations like to pool money together to bet on their teams against you know um either not. Other players on the other teams, or other people. Funny story: when uh, the Homestead team went to Philadelphia to play in 1901, and the Philadelphia gamblers wanted to lay money on it, and they they came to check out the Homestead players in the hotel as they walked through the lobby one night in their uniforms, and one of them poked at the uh, at the, one of the Homestead players, and the player just poked him back a lot harder, and uh, and. He, apparently the guy decided to put his money on instead of his Philadelphia people after he you know saw uh, how big and, and strong they were and how well they practiced and, and so on. So um, they, they were all about, you know, trying to make a few extra bucks. I think they could make more money, you know, on the side than they could in their, in their football
0: salary. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh it's in- interesting, uh, you know, memorabilia. We we love memorabilia, we collect it. Uh it's historical. Yeah. Um, yep. question for you. Have you uh, at you know, um tried to collect actively items uh from your great grandfather's career and or do you collect anything in general as far as uh football uh memorabilia is concerned? Right. Yeah, anything and everything related to him, his
2: teams, teammates, teams that he played, amateur, professional, photographs. So my first goal was to get a photo from every team that he played on in every year, and I was able to do that except for maybe the really unknown earliest amateur teams. But from 1899 through 1906 or 7 at least, I, I have photos um, of of his team. So that was a, a big accomplishment. And, and, um, uh, some of them came from collectors in, in, that I made friends with over the years and what, they knew what I was interested in. And they would, um, uh, give me a, a call when they found something that they knew I would like and knew I would pay too much for. So, um, <laughs> that there was that and then other things came like programs, finding, uh, program from the 1901 Homestead team uh, oh, wow. was an amazing find uh, from another one of those same collectors. Uh, a 1905 Maslin Canton program came from a, a Maslin resident that I met at the through the Maslin Museum out there. And then the big one was finding one of the 1906 Game 1 programs between Maslin and Canton. I actually found on eBay um, several years ago. That was incredible. Um, and then... Well, other little things would come up, like uh, pin ribbons, um, just with a Tigers you know, celluloid pin with a black and gold, black and orange ribbons on it. Or one really big one that had all the names and the games and scores uh, on it. Um, so, and then just other photos of individuals, or sometimes a little individual award I've uh, found on eBay that. Peggy Parrott, who was alleged to have thrown the first forward pass, you know, I found a little trophy that he was awarded at one point, or David Fultz, who was the captain of the Homestead team, another little cup that he was uh, given, so uh, I try to find postcards, you know, um, I have a lot of stuff, uh, and uh, the Hall of Fame would like to have it all at one point, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm sure I'd love to show it all to you sometime.
0: I mean, that That's stuff cool. is exceptionally, exceptionally rare. I mean, to find anything yeah. like that is, is
1: It's uh, harder incredible. and harder to find, for sure. Yeah. Um, Mom I talked people. a lot about, uh, you know, paper drives of the wars, about just you know. how newspapers in general, you know, just any paper, you put it in an attic, you know, and it gets uh, scorched by the heat. You put it in the basement. Maybe it's moisture or mold. Just how many fires in houses, how many floods. And for a, a a paper, a photo, a newspaper cutout like you have of the Masculoni Morning Gleaner, you know how something like that can make it a hundred and you know twenty three, you know year, hundred and seventeen years, excuse me, and and survive. I mean, it's just it's incredible. It's, it's such a lucky journey.
2: Yeah, a few years ago, uh, one of the last pieces to the the puzzle was one, uh, a good picture of the nineteen oh two team from Pittsburgh. I only had one out of uh, a Pittsburgh press newspaper, which, you know, had been yellowed and so on. But uh, I visited my great uncle one time. He was my grandmother's youngest brother and um, the last surviving sibling in the family. And he was so touched by my project that I was working on. He, he, he went into his bedroom you know, he was in his 80, late 80s probably at the time and um, came back out with this oversized, an incredible picture of the team picture of the 1902 Pittsburgh stars team and uh, matted on, on car, car I guess they call them cabinet photos, but big photos, like 24, you know, 18 by 24, maybe bigger.
0: The funny wow. thing about it was that it,
2: the image was reversed. It was like the peas on their jerseys were backwards. I'm like, somehow it got printed in reverse, but I was able to have it restored and, you know, flipped and, um, Put it in the book, and it's an amazing picture.
0: Wow! Mm-hmm. Unbelievable.
1: I love it. Well, Greg, love loves hearing your you know uh, your summary. But what what are your, some final thoughts on your book? And then tell us about how people listening in can find your book, uh, order it, buy it, uh, you know, and somehow put their hands on it. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, right now it is only available on the books. Website GridironLegacy dot com. Um, uh-huh. It's uh, you get a signed copy for fifty dollars, and um, uh, for the time being, and, and by the fall, it will be available on Amazon and all the major book retailers sites. Sure. Where it's currently available in a pre-order phase, but um, they have an annual cycle I've learned about that they have to go through to get the books in their warehouses and make them before they're available. So we're going through all that now, and it will be. Um, but you can't get the signed copies, you know, like you can through, through my site. But uh, so that, that's how to get it. Um, it's been a, a journey of trying to figure out how to how to bring it out and la- yeah. launch it to the public. It launched in September. The big party I had um, in Atlanta, where I was living at the time, and um, I've done what I can to do a bunch of podcasts, book signing events. Presentations in Ohio and um, DC and Atlanta, and some upcoming in Pittsburgh, and uh, just wherever I can. But uh, I'm a sort of a one-man band, and I um, hired a, a digital marketing company that's doing a great work on the website, and uh, and, and did a, a Facebook ad campaign that's about to, to close now that the Super Bowl has happened. But it's uh, it's gotten great exposure sold uh over a thousand books, which I, I think is pretty amazing, uh without a major publisher behind it. Yeah. But um totally. we'll, we'll, that we'll see great. where it goes. Wow. And I am excited every day is a new, you know, chapter in the in the journey.
0: Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's an amazing amount of books to sell as a private publisher. Like, I my hat's off to you. That's that's incredible. Thank you. Great, great <laughs> job. Great job. <laughs> It, it it's the nerve you know and
2: it, it's not just about the the football facts and the history it touches a family history nerve in people that w- when they just hear the word great grandfather they say they get goosebumps and and that's i uh, yeah. love it so many times uh, there's something that we're wired about to appreciate our ancestry and um and i think that's what makes it really cool
1: yeah three most, on your, most, again on your landing page three great endorsements from uh you know, from some Pittsburgh greats, Franco Harris, Rocky Blyer, and John. Uh, I'm gonna murder his last name. He's actually the only one I haven't haven't uh, haven't heard of. John Frenchie Pukwa. Well, John, he,
2: he was the other guy in the Immaculate Reception who collided with Jack Tatum, and when the ball oh, bounced back yeah. to Franco, so there's are sort of last at to hit. And uh, I met them together you know, at Franco's 40th anniversary Immaculate Reception party, and um, and he loved the story too. So we stayed in touch. And uh, he gave me a nice quote, also.
0: That's great. Yeah. That's great. yeah. Well, Greg, I taken time out of your schedule, uh, and again, uh, it's going to be a, uh, a a great book that people still going to be seeing and reading and buying in the future. And I I, I wish you all the best with it. And uh, quick question to put you on the spot: second book out there on anything, or what do
2: you think? <laughs> <laughs> Um, possible that there's an, a novel at some point. A, a publishing company's wanted to, to develop it as, with all the dialogue of the characters that's on the table. And there's also a miniseries on the table. We have a, a, a written uh, script for a six-part miniseries we're trying to get picked up. So lots great. of uh, possibilities.
0: Great. Sounds great. All right, great. Thank you. For thank, thank you. That. We appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. Thanks. Okay. Hope to meet you in person sometime. Take care. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Unbelievable. That, I mean, that that is living living football history. Um, exactly so, what I was
1: thinking. Literally just,
0: you know, I, I, I wow. bring up, you know,
1: Rev Moran, you know, just he is football. I constantly make that, you know, he is football history. I mean, yeah, this is right behind it. That's pretty cool. I wonder uh, I meant to ask him which side uh, which side of the family his uh his great grandfather, you know, Bob Shearing was. Uh it'd be interesting to know. Different different surnames obviously. So
0: Yeah. The, um but again, just to uncover all that information and to find those those photographs and everything and just that, yeah. what a what a story. That that's so nice to hear. Um and again it's preserving the, the history of the game. And that's what we've been doing for a long time now. And again, here's an, another example of, uh, you know, something you never would imagine is found and a story can be written on it and the history is preserved again. And that's what it's all about. And, you know, yeah. you know not, not to beat up a dead horse, but, you know, the NFL really needs to understand it has a really long history. It has a real involved history. It has a history of other leagues. It has a history of pre-professional football. Mm -hmm. And I I just don't understand, you know, I I get all the marketing, all the garbage of dollars and cents all the time, the multi-gazillion dollars that's in the game today. But if you're you're going to ignore and if you're going to continue to short change Football history i don't know what you're trying to prove by doing that. I really don't get it. I don't understand the marketing behind it, and again, I know I'm biased because you know i I've lived football history all my life, and as I get older and 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 I'm looking at things and I'm viewing things I'm saying, I just don't understand why they treat the game the way they they treat it. You know Super Bowl's a classic example. Uh, You know, drives you crazy. You got commercial after commercial. Flow of the game is always interrupted. You got a super, you got a Super Bowl halftime show that is is borders on pornographic. I mean, it just just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it could be such a nice game played, and, and you know, and it's a real chess match out there. And what is it? You know, it's just a slick marketing, marketing tool, and that's it. And it's wrong. It's really wrong. And you know, I, I'm not afraid to say it. I've been saying it for years now. That's the way I feel about it. You know, unbelievable, really unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, so again, uh, we're getting down to two minutes. Uh, we're getting down in two minutes. Yep. or two-minute warning. Joe, I'm going to uh, hand off to you. What you pick up on tonight's show?
1: Ah, uh, what a, what a great guest! Thank you for inviting him on. Um, yeah, wanted to, uh, yeah, to so yeah many questions sometimes it's like uh, we have to keep it along the scripts but there's so many little tangential you know questions i want to ask and uh you know like last guest talking about the of you know, mediocracy and uh you know that ended up being the yeah. you know the you know the kind of the lightning rod for the show uh what a great guest and good book um just a good looking book yeah. i love the title yeah. as i mentioned just pro football's missing origin
0: story and he's absolutely spot on absolutely right. Exactly. Exactly. Great. Great historical view. Uh, very refreshing. The family um, lineage. It, it was just great. That's that, that's a great story. Uh, that, that that would. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just don't have. I don't. I can't express it any other way. It's a great part of football history being preserved. It's essential to keep the game preserved in that manner. And uh, I'm glad we now have a a published book on it. And expanding that, yeah. that area even more than uh, what we limited knowledge we had about it up to this time. Totally. All right, down about a minute. Uh if you're not a subscriber to Gridiron Great Greats magazine, what are you waiting for? Gridiron Magazine dot com. Check out our website and uh subscribe today. Final thoughts, Joe. Twenty seconds. Uh good to be back.
1: Super Bowl man, love love Super Bowl time. Love uh yeah, I just love it. It was a beautiful
0: day here. Love it. Great show, Kyle. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, we had a nice time with the game watching it and I enjoyed it. And I you know, deep down I'm a I'm a fan of Andy Reid. You know, here are two guys, me and him, we're the same age, been through the mill. Uh you know, he's got a second ring, I'm I'm real happy for him. Great team too. At the same time. All right, we're almost out of time. Uh, we'll be back, hopefully, at the end of next week with another show. We've got a very special guest we're working on. We can't disclose at this time. Still working on him. We're getting on the show, and hopefully we're going to pull it off. And until then, uh, hopefully, like I said, we'll be back the end of next week with another show. Thanks for listening. Again, com.